All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 this morning, and we're going to be talking about treasures and pearls and, and uh, things like that. So I, I don't know if you guys, we've been going through the parables for a while now. I don't know if you guys have, have uh, noticed this, uh, but I've noticed something about the parables that Jesus teaches. The, the ones that he explains are a lot easier to, to understand than the ones that he doesn't. Have you guys, have you guys seen that to be true? Um, Today we're going to be looking at three different parables. They're only found in Matthew's gospel. They all start with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. One is about a hidden treasure, one is about a pearl of great price, and the other is about gathering fish into a net. And only the last one is explained by Jesus. So the first two that we're going to look at, um, people have different ideas of what, it, what they might mean, and we're going, to, we're going to cover those first. So in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So these two parables tell two different stories, but they make the exact same point. And in both, we see a discovery, an estimation, and then a response or an action. So we have a man who discovers a treasure. He makes an estimation that it's worth everything to him. So he responds by selling everything he has in order to secure it. And the first parable, the person just kind of happens upon treasure that somebody else had buried. There's no indication that he was looking for it. This would have been at a time when banks weren't a thing. So if you had something valuable, you, you know, burying it in a field probably was a great way to go. As long as you remembered where you buried it and you stayed alive long enough to to find it again. Well, in this case, it looks like that may not have happened, so somebody else comes, comes upon it. And, and the, the person that um, finds it, in order to take possession of it without any dispute of any kind, he decides to purchase the entire field so that he can secure it for his own. And the treasure, he decides, is more valuable than, than anything else he can imagine, so he's willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Now, in the second parable, we have a merchant who's actually searching for treasure in the form of pearls. These were rare at the time, uh, very desirable. I think they still are, although now you can buy fake ones and nobody knows the difference, I guess. So. Uh, but he finds one of great value and estimates that, it, that it's better than any pearl he's ever seen before or any pearl that he'll ever come across you know, again. And so he also sells everything in order to secure it for himself. Now, it's important for us to point out that Jesus is not trying to teach us about treasure hunting or investments or real estate or, or finances or anything like that. He's using something, a concept we're, we're familiar with to bring home a bigger point. Most commentators, uh, many, maybe most, I think, um, teach, teach it kind of along the same lines. They, they say that the, the gospel or the good news of Jesus is the treasure or the pearl of great price. The field is the world. It's where we find the treasure. It's consistent with other parables we've looked at. The, the world, uh, the field and the world usually are the same thing. And then the person who finds the treasure or the pearl represents those who hear the gospel, see the value of it, and, and then whether they've stumbled upon it or whether they've been searching for it, they, they find this truth and, and they do whatever they have to, to to take hold of it. If that's what Jesus is teaching here, then the point would be that the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value and it's worth everything we possess. And that's why just hearing like the story of, of Ben wanting to just go and do this thing is like he found a treasure and he doesn't care about anything else. He wants to go and be a part of that. And that's, that's kind of the picture. So I would ask, is that true for you? 
is, is this treasure worth more than anything else? The treasure of knowing Jesus, knowing who he is and what he's done for you. And, and I would, you know, ask the question, why is, is this treasure so good that it's worth forsaking everything else? And the first reason is that it restores our brokenness. Every one of us is broken. Sin has broken humanity, it's broken the world, and it's broken us. And this is what restores us, restores us to, to, to being right with God and, and just right again. It gives us forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I have a debt that I can't pay. My sin has, has put me into this position where I'll never be able to pay that. And this gift, this treasure of Jesus Christ, forgives my debt. It gives me a righteous record before God. I mean, it takes your rap sheet and just does away with it. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to have. It removes any fear of death and judgment. Because of that, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the judgment that, that's coming. It gives us a free ticket into his kingdom, into heaven. And then most importantly, but probably the thing we value, maybe not as much as we should, it gives us a relationship with God and the one who made us. We're reconciled to him. We get him. And that's the biggest treasure that there is. So when you know, we think about it, what are those things worth? What kind of price tag do you put on those? You can't. Can you think of anything that's more valuable than that? Now, the Apostle Paul, I think, is a really good example of, of somebody like this that, that, that found this treasure, right? He was somebody who had desperately tried to please God through his own works, through his own righteous efforts. And, and to be honest, he did a much better job than most of us do, right? He's pretty good at it, right? And then Paul was abruptly confronted with the gospel of grace. And this was much different than anything he'd previously encountered because up to this point, Paul always had to wonder, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And he was doing a lot of stuff, and he kept, always had to wonder about that. Christianity gives us a righteousness that is received, not achieved. What a gift that is. Jesus earned it for us. We don't have to, we don't have to do that part. So we don't have to wonder if I've done enough because he's done enough. And that's an amazing treasure. And so Paul writes something in Philippians chapter 3 that sounds a lot like what somebody would write who found the treasure in the field or the pearl of great price. He says, Whatever gain I had, so righteousness or possessions or relationships or whatever, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's like he's the treasure. The rest of this stuff doesn't matter. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. It's like garbage compared to what I've got now. So I'm willing to get rid of all those things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a gifted righteousness that's imputed to you freely by Him. It depends, and he says it's a righteousness that depends on faith, not works. So, so what a difference, what a contrast between what Paul was trying to do and then what came upon him. And, and when he found it, he said, I'm willing to get rid of everything to get this, right? And that's the question. Is this worth forsaking everything else for? The implication is once that you find this, once you've found what you've been looking for, all other, you know, all further treasure expeditions are off. You're like, okay, I can cross those off the calendar. I don't need, I can hang up my Indiana Jones hat. I don't have to do any more of this. I found what I'm looking for, finally. But we don't do that, unfortunately. I wish that all Christians just did that. It's like, okay, there's nothing else. But, but for some reason, we, we tend to want to go back to the stagnant pools that we tried to drink out of before and the pig slop that we used to flop around in before and think, maybe, maybe I'll find something there. You won't. 
There's nothing there. There's no life there. There's only dissatisfaction and disappointment. So cling to this treasure that is Christ's. The sooner we figure that out, the, the better off we are, right? Because the kingdom that we belong to now is so far superior to anything this world has to offer. And, and, and I just, I love that. It provides everything that I need. Before, I didn't, I didn't know who I was. I didn't really have an identity. And you look at how people are trying to find their identity in the world today, doing crazy things, trying crazy things, radical things. I have an identity in Christ. I'm found in Him. You know, it, it, that gives me everything I need. That means I also have adequacy. You know, that feeling like I, you never measure up or you never quite. In Christ, I have complete adequacy. I'm adequate. I have complete acceptance. Do you know how good it is to be fully known and fully loved? I mean, God knows everything about me. The stuff that you guys, you know, I'm not pulling the curtain back too far this morning, but like the stuff that nobody knows, he knows all of that past, present, and future, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he says, I know you, and I love you. <laughs> it's like, I have that kind of acceptance. And I have security. Nobody can mess this up, not even me. Nobody can take me out of the Father's hand. That's an amazing thing to have. I have family. I'm just kind of a weird family. You know, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> I had to lighten it. I have this wonderful family of brothers and sisters. It, it, it's such a gift to be able to know that no matter where I go, if I'm with Christians, I'm with family, and I belong. That's a great thing, and I have purpose. Before, I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to find purpose in all these different ways. Now I know what my purpose is. Glorify God, enjoy Him, and tell other people about Him until He comes. So what a beautiful freedom we have when we belong to this kingdom and, and we, we live in light of this kingdom. Our citizenship is already there, even now, and, and we can live that way. It allows us to live unencumbered in this world and not have to worry about all the weird stuff that's going on. I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to get twisted around when things are going wrong around me because I'm part of a different kingdom, and it's already begun. Christ has already established it. It's, 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 it's you know, now and not yet. I realize there's this tension of both, but, but that's where I belong. That, that's my home. And so once you find this treasure that is Jesus Christ, you're set for life, even eternal life, right? So what, what a gift. Now, of course, there are people who hear the news that is the gospel, and then they don't see it maybe as the treasure that it is. And this may be for several reasons, but, but, but a couple would be maybe they don't see it as good news because they don't fully understand the bad news. So if you don't see yourself as a sinner, it's not going to really come across as good news. Or maybe they do see it as good news, and they like the idea of going to heaven, but they also see value in kind of keeping, you know, what they want, what they love, all their other possessions, all the things that matter to them. And so, so they don't really want to forsake things. There's a story about a guy that, that's referred to as the rich young ruler in the Bible we read about in Matthew 19 that's, a, that's an example of both of these things. Um, he didn't necessarily understand the bad news, and he also didn't really want to give up what, what he had. So in this account, the young man comes to Jesus and asks him the most important question that anybody can ask, and that is, what, what good deed, or what, what do I have to do to go to, to heaven? But he does say, what good deed do I have to do? So in his mind, give me the, give me the checklist, you know. Jesus, you know, say, hey, die to yourself, forsake everything. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that, but give me like a three things to do list, and I'll I'll handle business. That's, that's easier. So he asks him, what, what good deed must I do? This tells us that the rich man saw himself, he was rich in two ways in his estimation, because he had finances, but he also apparently was morally pretty well off in his mind, thought he was doing a really good job morally. And as we will soon see, that means he didn't see himself as much of a sinner. 
He thought he was pretty close to getting into heaven based on his own merit. And um, this, this is something I think there's a lot of people that fit into this category. They don't see themselves as sinners. And, and part of that is, especially nowadays, I mean, when you look at, like, it, it takes a lot to look like you're doing something wrong today, right? I mean, it just does. You can do some pretty crazy things, and people are saying, oh, that's fine. So for somebody to be, wow, that's not right, you know, it's got to be pretty, pretty off the charts now. So it's really easy to look at the world around you and think, yeah, I'm pretty good. And I think that's what this guy was doing. It also would have been logical for him to assume that God was happy with him because he was well off financially. So we do that, don't we? We think, okay, well, if, if I have money, that means God likes me. And if I don't, that means he's not pleased with me. We, we think that way, and that's not accurate. Um, it could mean that God has blessed us, but you know who else has the ability to give riches in the world according to the Scriptures? We know that the enemy does that because when, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus said, hey, Jesus said, Satan said to Jesus, I'll get this right. I did that last week too. It's like this close to heresy sometimes, right? It's like, okay, Whew. thank you, Lord. Satan said, all of these things, all this, this stuff that you see out there, I can give to you if you'll bow down to me. And Jesus didn't say, that's not yours to give. Now, there's a sense in which we know God is always reigning and ruling and Christ is reigning and ruling. But he has given Satan the ability to bless people with riches, which Satan will use to, draw, to pull you away from God. Because if you have money, you know, Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven or harder, easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than to get a rich man into heaven because that's what they rely on. They don't, they don't see a need for God, and that's, that's what was going on here. So it may not necessarily mean that God's blessing you, but he thought it did. So even though this man thought that he was morally rich and financially rich, he still knew something was missing. And I think this is so telling because I think we all know that deep down in our soul, something's wrong. We're broken. Something's not right. We need to, we need to get right with God. And he, he had this indication, even though he's still, you know, something's lacking and he knows it. So we ask Jesus the question, what do I need to add to my already stellar resume so that I can get to heaven? I know I'm close. You know, what would just kind of push me over the line is what he's asking. Do I need to go to church more often? Do I need to increase my giving a bit? Maybe I need to volunteer more of my time. That's the way we think. Now, if you've ever read this account, you might be pretty surprised by Jesus' answer back to him. He's saying, what do I need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus says, if you would enter life or go to heaven, keep the commandments. Does that not sound like Jesus is teaching salvation by works? Is he? No, he's being honest. He's telling the truth. All you have to do to get to heaven on your own is keep the commandments, every one of them perfectly, all the time, without exception. All right? Anybody working on the, anybody, anybody signed up for that program? Yeah. No, that program is not, not, not going to work, right? So he's not teaching salvation by works. What Jesus is really doing here is he's zeroing in on this guy's blind spot. This guy couldn't see his problem. He couldn't see his deficit. And I love that Jesus is patiently, like, kind of holding his hand and walking him on the path. Let's, let's go for a walk together, and I'm going to show you what's up. That's what's going on. So hopefully it creates desperation in this guy. Hopefully he sees that the gospel really is a treasure that he needs. Jesus knows what's in each of our hearts. He knows exactly. I might not be the same as the rich young man, but I've got, you know, a whole line of problems that, that he need, would need to work on to show me this. And so he works on this guy right where he's at. Because this guy's convinced he's a good person, that he's pleasing God, and, um, and he's not. So in response to uh, Jesus telling him all he has to do is keep the commandments to gain access, he asks the question, which ones? It's a great question, right? Because there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. That's a lot. Then you've got everything the religious leaders piled on top of that. So he's saying, okay, what, which ones am I 
am I missing out on? You know, which ones do I need to, to focus on? And Jesus simply sticks with the well-known commandments, some of the ones from the Ten Commandments, you know, the basics. And um, the ones that he mentions are found in verse 18. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's possible that Jesus listed out the commandments. Maybe this guy at least thought he was doing a really good job of, gave him the benefit of the doubt. And so the young man actually thinks he is because he replies accordingly. He says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Isn't that funny? Done that. Next. You know, it's like, have you though? I don't know. Maybe he has. And this is where Jesus drills down to the real issue. He responds by saying, if you would be perfect, again, that's the standard. Don't miss that. He stipulates that need. And, and that, that means that it disqualifies all of us. I know we don't think that way. We, we tend to think, and I think most people think this way, that when we get to the end, that God's going to pile up all of our good works on one side of the scale and all of our bad works on the other side of the scale, and we're just hoping that maybe the good works kind of edge it out. You know, again, that's a bad program to end up, you need to trust in Him, because guess how many sins it takes to put on that one side of the scale to disqualify you? One. And that does, some people say, well, that doesn't sound fair. What if I do all these good works, just one? And I'll give you a really gross illustration that'll stick with you. And if it's too gross, I'm sorry, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a visual. So if I found a wonderful, pristine glass of the coolest, freshest spring water you could find, pure, and I put that glass out in front of you and said, would you like a drink? You wouldn't hesitate. It would be very refreshing. You'd feel great about it. But if I went into the men's bathroom, and I, I chose the men's bathroom on purpose because it's the grosser bathroom, I think we could all agree. <laughs> And I took a dropper, one of those little squeezy things, and I, I went into the toilet and took just one drop and came back to that glass with just one drop of toilet water from the men's bathroom and put it in that glass. Now what? What's just happened to that water? It went from pure to <laughs> fully defiled with one drop. It changes the whole state of it. It changes the whole makeup of it. And that's what we don't understand. It, 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 we go from holy to unholy because of one sin in God's sight, right? Unblemished to blemished. That's the way it works. And so if you would be perfect is what Jesus said. That's, that's the standard. If you want to get into heaven, you must be this holy to get on this ride. It's, it's, it's perfect. So Jesus responds to the question, what do I still lack? By saying, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, again, it sounds like, is Jesus saying if we sell all of our possessions, we can get to heaven? No, that's not what he's saying. But he is, like I said, point, getting to the heart of the matter with this, this person. This person has said, I've kept all the commandments. I've done it all. And what Jesus is lovingly pointing out to him is he can't even get the first one right. He can't even make it past the first one, and he doesn't even see it. What's the first commandment? You should have no other gods before you. How many gods do we have before him? We don't think of ourselves as idolaters, but how many things do I put in his rightful place and not even see it? And that's exactly what Jesus is showing this guy. You have a God that you're serving, that you're not willing to forsake, that you're not willing to leave, but it's not him. It's, it's your money. It's your possessions. And it, and, it, and it worked. It got to the guy because it says that he walked away sad. He, he knew he couldn't. He, he couldn't do it. He had great possessions, and he walked away sad. And Jesus' disciples watch all this go down, and their response is, is amazing, too, because they say, well, then who can be saved? It's a great question. It's like, if this guy who's done all this stuff can't be, who can be saved? 
And this brings us to kind of this point in this parable of the understanding of it that, that's a bit of a turning point for me because I don't see myself as that much different than the rich young man. And so you, you start to wonder, did I get this parable right the way I'm looking at it? Because if it's up to me to, to see the value of this treasure, I might be in trouble, right? Would I willingly forsake everything else to get Jesus? Would I deny myself to get to God? What if I'm too broke to buy the field? What if I don't even realize that it's a treasure? What if that's who I am? And, and, and I find that that's probably more true of me than, than I want to care to admit. Jesus answers their question, the, the disciples' questions, who can be saved, with one of the greatest statements in the Bible. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If God intervenes, then this can all be fixed. And so this is where we might be able to flip the script on this parable and look at it a different way than we have. Um, because when we read the Bible, if you're like me, I read it like from an individualistic perspective. I think of myself, and I I fit myself into the story. So I'm in the Old Testament, and there's a hero. I'm like, okay, that's me. And if there's somebody conquering something, I'm like, that's me over there. I like to do that, right? The Bible's not about me. The Bible's about Jesus. It's a story about him. It's a story about how great he is. He's the hero of the story, not me. And so we naturally put ourselves as the one that bought the field, you know, I've discovered the treasure, I sold everything I had, and I bought the field. But what if we're not the, the main character of the story, and Jesus is? This is the difference between man-centered theology and Christ-centered theology. So we often say we're, we're a Jesus-centered or a Christ-centered or a gospel-centered church. This is what we're talking about, the way we view the Scriptures, the way we think about it. And in this instance, maybe this isn't about us finding Jesus. Maybe this is about Jesus finding us. As I said when we started, we have a man who finds a treasure. He makes an estimation that it's worth everything to him. And so he responds by selling everything he has in order to secure the treasure. Do you know that Jesus has done that for us? What if this, instead of being about us finding a treasure or a pearl, it's about Jesus finding those things? What if Jesus is the one who left everything he had? What if we're the treasure and the pearl of great price that he wanted? What if he paid for it with his own precious blood? What if God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we wouldn't perish but have everlasting life? What if that's the story of the Bible and the meaning of the parable? I mean, it changes everything, doesn't it? And it's hard to imagine us as a treasure. When I think about that, I'm like, well, come on, really? Like, I'm the pearl of great price? This, is, this doesn't make sense. But do you understand that he views us as his bride, his precious bride that he wanted. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about how unfaithful we are, how ugly we can be, how all of these things, and yet he sees us as his beautiful bride that he wanted. He left everything to get. And this isn't foreign to the scriptures, by the way. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, or sorry, 7 verse 6, it says, for, this is Jesus, or God talking about his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And I realize that's talking about Israel, but I don't believe we've replaced Israel. I've been, I believe we've been grafted into the same thing, so we're part of this same, this same thing now. And in the New Testament, in Titus 2, it says something very similar. It tells us, Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession. 
you are precious to God. He wanted you. He did everything, I mean, even what's unimaginable to, to get you. He, he forsook everything else to make you his own. Isn't that amazing? You know, that verse, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, that we would be adopted into his family. I'll tell you what, when I, you, you know, you have a choice of looking at the parable two different ways, right? Anytime I can take obtaining salvation out of my hands and I can put it into his hands, it's a good day for me. Because if it's up to me, uh, it feels more like a weight when I think I'm the one that has to go find the treasure and then I have to be looking for it in the first place and then I have to be willing to get rid of everything to, to get it. I mean, that, that almost feels, I don't know if that feels like good news to me. <laughs> but when I look at it the other way, as Jesus securing me, <laughs> it fills me with awe and worship and it changes the whole thing. So again, there are biblical reasons to understand this parable either way. And I'm not telling you which one you have to pick. But I kind of, I know which one I'm picking. <laughs> the one where Jesus is the hero and he secures me because he loves me is like best news I can get. And if that is the meaning of the parable, by the way, then the, the next section kind of, it flows into it quite well. And this is the, the next parable that we come to. And this is in verse 47 where he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And again, like I said before, this is one that Jesus explains for us. Thank you. In verse 49, he says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in this parable, Jesus describes like a large dragnet, that's how they would fish, and you can kind of picture from the beginning of time, this net, you know, slowly drawing men, all men, all women, everybody that's been created to the shores of eternity. And, and once you get there, that's when they sort out the eternal destination. It's very similar to the parable of the weeds and the wheat that Pastor David did, uh, covered a few weeks back. If you didn't hear that, it was a great sermon. I would encourage you to listen to it. It ends the same way. It says, at the end, the angels will come, and they'll separate the good fish from the bad fish. And in that one, it was the, the wheat and the, the tares, or, or um, depends on your translation. But, uh, and then we know that we've already talked about this. You know, how do you become a good fish? Well, it's not based on your good deeds or how much righteousness you can produce. That's not how it works. Uh, we can't make the cut if that's it. So, so it has to be something that's granted to us, and we have that in Christ. So anyone who makes it into heaven does so based on Jesus' righteousness, not our own. It has to be gifted to us, and it's, it's something that's by faith. So the good fish then would refer to anyone who has confessed their sin and their need for a Savior, who has repented of their sins and placed their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and then bowed their knee to Him and confessed that He is Lord. Okay, that's, if you've done that, congratulations, you're a good fish, right? But that's the only way to become a good fish. So now I would say when we read passages like this, it's very easy to only see the disturbing side, right? The fiery furnace is sitting right there and, and you can't help but see it. But it's also helpful for us to focus on the incredible grace that exists in this passage because the reality of mankind is that each one of us has been swimming away from God and we would have happily done so apart from him intervening. So the fact that any fish end up in his kingdom is just absolute grace from God. None of us deserve 
to be there, and none of us would go there. So when you consider what God has done to make it possible, like giving his son for that to happen, amazing grace, right? Somebody should write a song about that. Um, There's been this recent push to erase the idea of hell and to try to give God uh, like a much-needed makeover, like, let's, let's, give him, let's give his image a makeover is, is the idea. The truth is the Bible is not vague about hell. Um, the reason that we want to change it is because we don't feel comfortable with it. It makes us uncomfortable. It's not something, I'll be honest and say, it's not my favorite subject to talk about. It's like between money and hell, it's kind of like, I don't know which one's worse. <laughs> I don't want to talk about either of them. But Jesus talked about it, didn't he? And he did so with very vivid detail. He certainly talked about it like a real place where real people would end up. Too many Christians have jumped on this bandwagon, and they're all too quick to like try to be God's publicist and say, well, we need to make him read better with this, this, this group over here, and especially with the younger people. They don't want to hear about hell. So, so let's just give God a, a makeover. And what we end up doing is we end up creating an image of God that we're comfortable with. How do you suppose he feels about that? You think we need to get God off the hook? You think he wants us to rebrand his image? I don't think he does. I think it might upset him when we do that. So we have to answer the question, are we going to submit to the the pressures of culture and adjust our truth according to that? Or are we going to submit to what the Bible teaches and to the authority of the Scripture? And and even if it's uncomfortable, agree with what it says. And and I'm, I'm doing that one every time. There are two things that help me in regard to the subject of hell. One is knowing that God is completely just and that nobody will end up there unfairly. I don't always understand that now, I'll be honest, but I know that when we're in his kingdom and we're there with him, there will be no question about that. And I take comfort in that. I know that that will be something that's revealed to us. The other thing that helps me is acknowledging or helps me to, you know, acknowledge in the reality of hell is that it motivates me. And it should motivate you too if you believe it's true. One of the big dangers with this movement to erase hell is it also relate, erases any urgency to warn people that, that they may end up there. See, see how that works? If we convince ourselves that hell isn't a big deal, then we don't have to have difficult conversations. We don't have to awkward conversations with people we love or, or anything. You know, that all goes away. That's pretty convenient, right? Gets us off the hook. But again, Jesus spoke about it and he did so in terrifyingly vivid details. So I'll be honest and say this is what scared me into the kingdom of God was the reality of hell. I grew up in a religion that basically taught, you know, don't murder people and don't do really bad sins and you'll go to heaven still. And I was terrified of hell from day one. I just remember it vividly, but I didn't think I was going to go there. And the minute I realized I was, well, I started asking questions quickly. What do I need to do to be saved was the primary one. But utter darkness, a place where the fire never runs out of fuel, a place where the worm never runs out of something to eat, and a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't want to have you sit and dwell on that for too long this morning, but, but we ought to give that some thought. And, and if we believe that's real, the most loving and wonderful thing we can do is share the truth of the gospel. There's a way out of that. Christ has provided a way out of that to speak the good news. So throughout these parables, Jesus is teaching his disciples some amazing truths 
about the kingdom of heaven. A lot of it would have been uncomfortable for them. A lot of that would have challenged their notions. So he ends the parable by asking the following question. It's kind of funny in verse 51. He says, have you understood all these things? Now, Jesus was a very good communicator, a master at communication. If there's any deficit, we know it's not on him, right? Um, but he, he takes the time to make sure that they've understood what he said. This is part of communication. If I'm t- talking and I don't get clarification back from you that you've understood me, you know, I don't know if communication's taken place. So it's a great question to ask. Um, it's okay when we, you know, for us to admit when we don't understand something. In fact, I wish more people in the church did this. If they, if they heard something we said or they were curious about a doctrine or whatever was going on, they would come and ask us and we could have time to sit down. When Jesus asks them the question, he gives them the opportunity to say, no, we're not, we're, we, didn't, we don't know what you were talking about. But that's not what they say. They respond with a rather surprising, yes, yes, Jesus, we've been totally tracking with you this entire time. No, you know, no questions on our end. And so that means they were either way smarter than we give them credit for, or they were liars. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, you know, you've been in that spot before where somebody says, did you understand? And I, even when we were just over in Scotland, there were times people would say stuff to me, and I'm like, yep, we're good, you know? And I had no idea what they said, because they, they said they were speaking English, but I don't know that they always were. But I like what one commentator says here. He says he thinks that the, the disciples responded with more enthusiasm than with accuracy. And <laughs> I think that's exactly what they did. Um, if they did understand it, it didn't last very long. Because from this point until the, like the resurrection, they, they, they're walking around just kind of scratching their heads quite a bit. But Jesus doesn't challenge their answer. Um, but this is what he does. He charges them to take this newfound knowledge that they've received and to make sure that others know about it. And I don't want this to to be missed. Take the newfound knowledge that they've received and let other people know about it. Do you know that he's given you the same charge? So this is what he says in verse 52. After he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. A scribe is somebody who studies the scriptures, helps interpret the scriptures, helps to tell other people what the scriptures mean and how they're supposed to live by them. And so he's charging him with this task. We usually refer to it as discipleship today. Do you know that part of the Great Commission, it's part of, the, part of the Great Commission that we leave out, is teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. You know that's in there? Yeah. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's right there. And we kind of forget about it. And and this is the charge he's giving them there. He talks about taking treasures out of the old and out of the new. And this is referring to the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what he was teaching was new to them, but it would eventually become New Testament. That means we're supposed to be students of the Bible and the whole Bible. And it's on you to learn the Bible well. And it's on us as pastors to, to give you the opportunity to do that as well. So if it's something that, if this is an area where you know you've been deficient and you want to grow in it, come and talk to us. We love, we're, we're kind of theological you know, nerds. We don't always, you know, we struggle with some, you know, figuring things out and stuff too, but we love theology. And there's people in this church that would love to sit down and and work through these things with you. So if this is something you're interested in, because I really believe that we have opportunities right now. People have questions. And if we have answers and we've studied these things through, this is what apologetics is in the Bible, is the idea that when somebody comes, I have an answer. What a great opportunity because people have tons of questions right now. They don't know what's going on. And we have treasures from the old and we have treasures from the new. And, and to know where to go and what to use and when to use it is, is something that each one of us should, should be able to do. And so I kind of lost where I was, but I think that's probably a good place to stop. Um, the biggest important thing is there's always, again, who's, who's the Bible about? Jesus. 
He's the hero of the story. So whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament or, you know, find, I, I don't want to say f- like where's Waldo, that sounds bad. Find Jesus in the scriptures. He's there. And again, there's not always like a direct path, you know, a correlation, but, but he's the main character of the Bible. He's the hero of the Bible. If you're reading the New Testament, he's there. If you're reading the Old Testament, you need to read it through the lens of Jesus, all right, through the, through the new covenant. That's the way we understand these things. But, but at any rate, um, make much of Jesus. That's the point. And, and, and learn the scriptures and, and learn to be able to share it with other people. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that and we'll pray. Father, we're grateful for the parables, Lord, and, and for um, the, the truths that we learn through them about what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. Lord, we long for your kingdom. Uh, we just pray even now, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we desire to be with you. We desire to, to make sure that other people that we know that don't know you yet get to come into your kingdom. And so give us this passion, this burden for who you are and what you've done. And help us to engage people, Lord, to study the scriptures, to, to show ourselves approved, and to be able to lead people to you uh, the way that somebody led us to you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.